0: Well, good morning, church. How was summer going? Good, Hot, yeah, hot and good. Yeah, that, that, that's about right. I'm so glad to be back with you guys. Um, my family was out last week. Uh, thank you for get, letting us get away for a week. Went to Destin, Florida. Uh, I chilled on the beach and did nothing, and it was amazing. And so glad to be back, but Uh, Just missing one Sunday with you guys, it feels like I haven't seen you in like years. And so I'm so glad to be back and opening up um, the Word of God. We finished a sermon series last week through the book of Proverbs. And so in the fall, we're going to be walking through Colossians. But between now and then, we have a few weeks and we're going to cover some specific topics. And uh, today, we're actually going to begin probably the shortest sermon series I've ever preached in my life because it's two weeks. I don't know if you can call that a sermon series. And the title of the series is Modern Family, and I'm going to be preaching this from the perspective of whether you're married um, or single or have a family or, or don't have an immediate family. I'm preaching this uh, so that we understand what biblical family looks like scripturally. Even in our modern world, and I'm kind of playing off of the show that I don't even know if Modern Family still runs or not, right? But it was a couple years back, I watched it, I wasn't too into it. Um, But it was kind of a really famous show that kind of had a simple message that said that family today is kind of different and things have changed and times have progressed. We're no longer in the Leave it to Beaver 1950s anymore. And uh, that show kind of sought to uh, reveal the way family works nowadays, and yet for us as Christians... Uh, We are always, in all things, not just with family, um, opening God's word, his revelation to us, and asking us how we're supposed to live. We have found that God loves us and provides for us and wants good things for us. And so when it comes to marriage and singleness, uh, we go to him and say, God, you created these things. How do we do them? And so today we're going to talk about marriage and singleness and next week we're going to be talking about uh, raising kids, and then also loving kids for people who uh, do not have kids. Because next week we'll look that all of us have a responsibility in raising the next generation to some degree. Uh, and yet today I know that the sermon is going to apply to everybody because you're either married or single. Though of course I would not doubt our modern world to come up with some third stage of you know you're not married, you're not single, you're like something else, right? Uh, because nowadays you can pretty much be a fairy princess if you just think hard enough about it. Um, But uh, that's a different sermon for a different day. And so I've titled it, The Gifts of Singleness and Marriage. The Gifts of Singleness and Marriage. And the reason why I've I've titled it that is because as I talk to many of you, and I I don't do this hypothetically, I didn't read this in a book, um, I talk to many of you, I I know most of you, I know your names. Um, As people uh, join the church and as we start to walk together, I have the pleasure of getting to know about you and what your life is like. And what I've kind of found, and maybe uh, you can relate with this, is that people who are single often struggle with their singleness. And by single, I mean like the 16-year-old single guy or the woman who's 75 and she was married, but her husband passed away. And so now she's um, unmarried again, right? But I find that if people are single, they often struggle in their singleness. But then when people are married, they often struggle in their marriage as well. And so either way, in my experience, it seems like we're kind of all on the struggle bus together, you know what I mean? We're all on the bus together, we're all walking through life, we're all trying to figure out what God has for us and what he wants us to do, and so yet, what if we just stopped for a moment... And looked at the scriptures and said, man, maybe God has a really good plan for our singleness. Maybe it's way better and way more purposeful than you think your singleness is. And maybe your marriage is much more meaningful and beautiful and impactful than you even think that it is. And if you get one thing this morning, what I really want you to get is that whether you have a spouse or do not have a spouse, your relationship status is divine, it is of the Lord, it is what he wants for you in that season, and there are many, many good things in it. And so that's what I want to offer you this morning. But we're going to begin this morning um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, We're going to begin by looking at singleness, and as I was reading this this week, it just reminded me of how so often we we miss things, right? We kind of go on autopilot in life, and we think I'm single, and maybe we think that's a burden in our life, or maybe we think our singleness has no implication for how we live our life. Um, I'm reminded of how good the Word of God is this morning to guide us and to lead us. And so I'm going to dive right in because we have a lot, a lot of ground to cover this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 through 9, um, I believe that this should be up on the screen, what you need to realize here is that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, which was, for lack of a better term, a really messed up church, right? Um, for some reason, I don't know why this is, uh, especially when I talk to friends, I feel like people act as if the Bible was written to like 1600s Amish people in a very prude, um, non-progressive culture, and it's like this old-school, kind of outdated thing that was written to like backwoods people, right? That's how a lot of people see it. That's probably how I saw it when I first became a Christian, Right? And yet much of the Bible is written to very progressive people in very progressive times, and you can study it for yourself. But what I know about Corinth culture 2,000 years ago is I would argue they were even much more sexually and lifestyle progressive than even we are in our day, okay? So Paul is writing to a church that has a lot of issues, identity issues, sexual issues. Um, There's a lot of division in the church. It's basically a dumpster fire, as I often say. It's like my phrase. It's a dumpster fire, right? And so Paul speaks into this church because people are asking about singleness and if it's a good thing, and if it's a good thing, what are we doing with our single status? And he writes this in 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 6. Now it's a concession, not a command. I say this. Stop. Okay, so I know we just started, but I'm going to stop you right there, okay? So what Paul is saying here is he's about to make some pretty bold statements and many of us are going to hear this and we're maybe going to create a legalistic rule about this and, and he's going to say something and we're going to think maybe everybody should be single, right? And so what Paul is saying here, and and I love this, he's saying, look, I'm about to offer you some godly wisdom, and yet this is not a command, right? This isn't like what I say, all of a sudden everybody leaves here and gets divorced and leaves their spouse and never pursues marriage, singleness is a good thing, but he's saying this is not a command but a concession, right? So you're asking questions about this, you're struggling with this, let me provide you God's will in this, right? Verse 7, he says, I wish that all were as as I myself am. And so what Paul is saying there, he's like, listen, I'm single. And so that's what he's referring to there. He's like, I'm single, okay? And I wish, from a perspective, right, that all were single. He says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And this is huge, Because what this says is it changes the narrative of our day, right? Some people uh, like being single. Some people see it as a huge burden in their life. But what Paul says here, this is so powerful and profound. He says, listen, if you are single, that's a gift. I know it's like the most countercultural thing to say at times, right? That singleness is a gift from God, right? Some people view it as like relational purgatory, right? Some people like it, right? But some people really hate it. And so what Paul is saying is your singleness is not random, it's not just a matter of fact, there's a purpose behind why you're at in that stage. But he says also other people have different kinds of gifts, and he would have been referring to marriage here. So he's like, listen, it's all a gift, God's in all of it, God has a calling for all of it, and he's about to lead us in that. And then in verse 80, he continues, and he says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So it's a good option. It's a good thing to do. Verse 9, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so this is one of those interesting things for us. And the reason why the Holy Spirit is so important is because Paul says, Hey, you can get married, and that's a good thing. You can pursue that, or you can stay single, and that's a really good thing, and you can pursue that. But what we must realize is that Paul says is that singleness is a gift from God with a divine purpose. If you're single or even if you're married, write that down. Singleness is a gift from God with a divine purpose. Biblical singleness is a season of life. It may be for your whole life or for part of your life where uh, you are sexually pure, but you're also relationally not entangled the way that many of us in marriage are. In singleness, there is a level of freedom that you have that married people do not have, and Paul talks about this here in a moment. But the problem is, in our world today, and especially as Christians, and, and I would actually argue especially as Christians, right, there's something about we almost, and I apologize for this, we kind of elevate marriage maybe even a little bit too much, right? We want everyone to be married, and we kind of push that, and um, oftentimes churches, when it comes to singleness, we don't talk about it as much, right, but we talk a ton about marriage. And so I think what happens then is single people just kind of begin believing that their their status in life is just kind of a default position, and maybe God's not calling them to do too much with that singleness, they're just kind of living in it, right? I kind of view it like this, it's like imagine if I gave you a Les Paul, which a Les Paul is like the best guitar you could ever get, okay? Okay? So if you remember uh, Guns N' Roses Slash back in the day, yeah, with the guy with the top hat, right, the curly um, permed hair, right? Um, So Slash played a Les Paul. It's like the best kind of guitar that you can buy. But imagine if I gave you a Les Paul as an amazing gift, a wonderful gift to make beautiful music and for whatever reason, you thought that the reason I gave you the Les Paul was because it was an axe, of which then you're going to chop down a tree with, right? So just imagine the horrifying image, right, of you taking a Les Paul guitar, an amazing thing of the Lord, and you take it, and you try to chop down a tree with it. I actually almost YouTube it to see if a video of this was on YouTube. I bet there is one. I didn't actually get around to doing it. I was going to show it, but I ran out of time. So... But if you were to actually try and do that, let me tell you what you wouldn't do. You wouldn't chop down the tree, right, because that's not what it's meant for. I know, I know sometimes you call a guitar an axe, but that, it's like a music axe, right? It's not a, not a tree axe, right? But you wouldn't chop down the tree, but what you would do is you would ruin this beautiful, amazing gift. And I say that because I think often in singleness, when we don't use it properly or know what the Lord has for us in it, we ruin it. But singleness is a gift from God, but we enter now into its divine purpose. And so look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 through 35. Like, this is amazing. Paul clearly lays out for us the benefits of singleness that we are to walk in. 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35, says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. And to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Singleness has a divine purpose for as long as God has you in that season. Singleness is meant, look at verse 35. He says, I say this to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So you're free of anxieties, right? But what does Paul connect that to? To an undivided devotion to the Lord. One of the divine purposes of singleness is it's meant to be a powerful season of spiritual growth between you and the Lord. When we use our singleness for this purpose, singleness becomes a huge blessing in our lives and not a huge blessing. Burden, I, I love it. Right, verse thirty-two says, "I want you to be free from anxieties." Right, he's like, "Hey, relationships bring anxiety. Can I get an amen?" Relationships bring anxiety. They bring problems. They bring issues. Right? Families are complicated, aren't they? Or maybe your family's perfect. This past uh, this past uh, week, we were in Destin, Florida, and it's interesting because I went two years ago to Destin, Florida, uh, before I had a baby. Right um and so it's just me and my wife you know it, it's funny when we, before you got kids like everything it's like it's kind of like uh the freedom feels like a honeymoon everywhere you go it's like your whole life's a honeymoon and um so we went to to destin two years ago and it was a really amazing trip and there was this one moment um it was beautiful weather but i think for one moment it actually kind of rained and we had this beautiful moment this was two years ago right mine before molly right uh we had this beautiful moment on the beach uh, together, it kind of rained a little bit, it was romantic, I think we might have even kissed, you know, it was, it was beautiful. Flash forward two years, a week ago, go to Destin, I got a 15 month old, we go to the beach with some family, and we show up, and we drive an hour to this really nice beach, and of course what happens, it rains, right, because that's what happens when you give up an hour to go somewhere, and uh, what could have been a romantic moment turned into a moment of mass anxiety because as it rains, my 15-month-old doesn't know that that's not Armageddon, okay? And so for her, rain on the beach is like we're all going to die, right? That's what she thinks. She doesn't understand it's a, it can be a really special moment. So it starts raining on the beach. My family can attest to this. They were there. She starts screaming her head off, right, just screaming and screaming and screaming. And I thought... Maybe it's just the way that little kids are, and then as we're walking, trying to get her into cover, we're walking past all these other babies who are not screaming, right? So I'm it's like, just my kid, okay? So she's screaming like, like bloody murder, right? I'm like, chill out, you know? And so what would have been a beautiful moment on the beach with the rain falling on us, getting us wet, uh, two years ago is now my baby screaming, literally running for cover as if we're about to die, And then we finally find cover under this, uh, like, bathroom kind of area. And I'm standing there, and she just will not stop screaming. You know, I I, I lost my, I don't know where my wife is. She ran somewhere else, right? I'm with the baby. And then all of a sudden, eerily, she kind of stops crying for a moment. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. But then two seconds after she starts crying, all of a sudden I feel this warm sensation running down my body. She peed all over me, Okay. When she's not crying, she's peeing on me. And I had that moment in my life. I was like, my life has changed so much. Wow. And, as, and I don't say to scare you kids. Because I, I tell people, like, having kids, in my opinion, is a lot more happiness and a lot more work. But it's a lot more work. And I can sense this. And the reality is there might be downsides to your singleness, and and you know what those are. But there are many benefits, and the question I would ask is, are you using those for the Lord? In your singleness, are you making this a sweet season of growing with God? Because Paul says, I I want this for you because it it can secure your devotion for the Lord. You're, You're undivided in a really special way. But then also, look in verse 32 and 33, we see that singleness is meant to be an impactful season of fruitful ministry, right? So he says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. So you can do great things for the Lord in your season of singleness. I don't get why in the church we don't talk about singleness more, right? Because let me tell you who was single. Paul was single, okay? Did God use Paul in mighty ways? Yes. Mother Teresa, single. Jesus, single. You're in great company if you're single. You can serve God in ways that many cannot. You can pursue unique ministries and education opportunities that married people and people that have kids can often not pursue. Use your singleness, do not resent it. But Paul does say, and in uh, verses uh, 7 through 10 earlier in our text, he does say that for those of us that pursue marriage, that's a good thing. If you're single and you want to be married, right? If you, if you want to be with someone, that's a good calling, right? But in the meantime, do not resent your singleness. It has a divine calling with a divine purpose in your life. So singleness is a gift, but marriage is also a gift. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 with me. we will read a really awesome scripture. Verses 22 through 33, this is Paul writing, and I, and I love this, right? Because it's like in one way Paul is saying, man, singleness is amazing, right? Like it's an amazing season of devotion to the Lord, but then we come to this. this. is a very powerful passage right here of the depth of marriage I think that we often miss. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. If you're married, hear this calling, hear it boldly. This is a massive calling that we live in. Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. My goodness, this is so, this is so, this is so deep, right, that, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, I think, big picture, what Paul tells us is that God has given marriage a divine purpose, right? Between Christ and the church. We saw that. And therefore, a divine design. God has given marriage a divine purpose. It's a meaningful, powerful thing. It's not just two people who don't want to be um, alone, right? There's a lot more going on in it than that. But also he's given it a divine design. But, but what is the purpose of marriage? And that's the problem, right? Most people think I get married because I just don't want to be lonely, right? Um, and that's a part of it, right? God does provide companionship for us, but it's more than that. It's not just because I want to be a little bit happier, it's more than that. And also, sometimes it'll make you a lot less happier, right, if we're honest, right, because you're learning to love a sinner. It's not an easy thing. It's not just because I want intimacy. though. That's a byproduct of marriage. It's not just because it's what everyone else does. It's like, well, I'm 30, so it's about time. You know, that's kind of what the, that's the cultural construct. I've got to get in line. You know, it's about time for me to get married. That's not why we do it. See, God has given marriage a divine purpose and that first purpose that Paul talks about over and over again is it reflects Christ and the church and to me this is the thing that I just it just frustrates me so much when people um, they read that they like you know especially like maybe non-believers they'll pull out uh, verse 22 wives submit to your husbands like I don't like that you know and a lot of women are like oh where's it going with this you know this ain't 1600s Amish John this is this is different okay this is like 21st century Houston, Texas, okay? This is, things have progressed, right? So they pull that verse out, and I understand at first that might seem a little scary for some people, right? Wives submit to your own husbands, the, the husband is the head of the household, but the thing that everybody misses, and the thing that people never quote when they're trying to bring reproof against scripture, is they don't make it to verse 25, Listen to verse 25. Don't glance over this and see the depth of the calling of which husbands are called to their wives. Verse 25 Husbands, love your wives. Okay, that's deep, but listen. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What did Christ do for the church? Answer that for me. Died. Did Jesus give up everything for the church? Yes. Did Christ serve the church? Was Christ patient with the church? Did Christ stick by the church? Did Christ judge the church when we were rebellious and away from him? Or did he lovingly come to us and die for us on the cross? You see, the reason why submission really isn't that big of a deal is because, listen, if you realize what's being called of men in this moment, you realize it's an amazing, deep thing. The thing about what we're called to do in this moment is to give everything for our wives. And listen, verse 36, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It's like literally husbands are supposed to be flourishing and nourishing their wives. Husband, your wife should be growing and flourishing under your headship, not withering. It's your responsibility to love her, to lead her, and to guide her. And the reason why the world does not understand submission is because men don't understand what it's like to love a woman like Christ loved the church. If they saw that, it would all make sense. I mean, think about, like, you go, I know I always reference, like, the notebook, but that's, like, our cultural narrative, you know? It's like the God like, loves her and does everything for her, and, and so therefore she kind of follows him. It's like this perfect union. And it's deep down what everybody wants. Look in verse 28, it says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. This is so deep. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Yeah, there might be some moments in biblical marriage and its divine purpose and design, maybe, where a husband has some leadership and some authority to take a family a certain direction. But the husband must be ready in a moment to literally die for his family, emotionally, physically, you name it because we're not just trying to be a little bit happier. Our marriages are called to reflect Christ's love in the church. Like Our marriages exist so that people can see an image of love in this world that is deep and profound. Marriages exist to be the most pure form of human-to-human love in existence. That's why your marriage exists. It exists because of what people can see when you do marriage and fulfill its divine purpose and design. We exist to reflect in our marriages the amazing love of God, Christ, and the church. It's astounding. Two people, one man, one woman, till death do them part, saying, I will be with you if you go blind or become paralyzed. I will stay with you if you're very um, emotionally difficult or if you're problematic or if you have issues. In a flaky world, and a flaky culture, marriage is an amazing thing that the world needs to see. So marriage has a divine purpose to reflect Christ in the church, but it's also, number two, provides a helper for us. Ecclesiastes says uh, that when two are together and one falls down, it's better to have somebody with you so they help you up. Marriage provides a companion for you in life. Number three, marriage grows us in godliness. Uh, James and I often talk about how a lot of uh, times in Christianity, we have a lot of hypothetical ideals and you know, yeah, prayer is a really good thing, but like I never pray kind of a thing, you know. Um, Or, um, yeah, it'd be really good to lay your life down for somebody, and yet we never really lay our life down for anybody. Marriage is a really cool opportunity to actually live out the love that Jesus calls us to live. Marriage is an opportunity to every day to get up and have a person you can serve and love and find fulfillment in in following Christ. We're not just talking about love. Marriage is modeling this every single day day in marriage a husband learns how to lay down his w- life for somebody else he learns how to do it because he didn't know it before because he was single he didn't have to but now he's learning how to do this he has to learn how to treat her literally as himself and women learn to trust and respect the one who loves her soul it teaches us how to deal with somebody of the opposite sex because in case you haven't noticed men and women are very very different it's also, also a one-flesh miracle. The two become one. That's that's profound. In marriage, the ego must die. Because there's now two and not just one. So marriage is a divine purpose to grow us in godliness. And lastly, marriage is a divine purpose to create a godly family. We're called to be fruitful and to multiply in our family. For many of us, that is our calling to, to have children. And the miracle of kids becomes a reality in marriage. And a committed, consistent marriage creates an opportunity not for just children to come into this world, but for kids to be raised in a loving, nurturing environment, learning how to interact with both a man and a woman in the home in a protected, safe environment until they're old enough to go off on their own. It's interesting. You read studies all the time about uh, things like poverty and uh, high incarceration rates, and it's funny, if you trace all these things back, you know, we're always trying to pinpoint all these different things, right? And, you know, I read this study once, that talked about uh, the one unifier between all the broken and ills in society. You think prostitution, you think homelessness, right? You think people in jail, you think people not educated, not having good jobs. The, the single biggest, like if you look for one correlation under all those things, what you will find is kids not having a mother and father both invested in their life growing up. I've heard it said, you, you, fix the, you fix the marriages, you fix the family, you get those things. It has a divine purpose to reflect God's love in the world, but is also good for us. Turn to Mark chapter 10 with me. Mark chapter 10. So here's the thing, marriage has a divine purpose. We've talked about that. We have to start there first, right? So God's doing something in marriage, and because... Marriage is a divine purpose. God has given us a divine design to walk in to accomplish that purpose. And what we see in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, is the words of Jesus about marriage, right? So um, in our world, there's a lot of different definitions of marriage and what it looks like and how it operates and who's in it, right? And if you ever wanted to know what does Jesus say, what are his words, this is what Jesus says. Mark 10, verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And all of us, this morning, we, we come before Jesus. Many of us come from... Broken families, different backgrounds, there's a lot of cultural confusion around this issue. And I just imagine all 150 of us now walking up to Jesus and asking him, what is this marriage thing, how do we do it, how do we honor you with it, Lord? And he stops for a moment and he teaches us by saying, but from the beginning God made them male and female. And I say this humbly because I know there's a lot of um, different opinions on this in our day and age, but biblically, male and female, they're, they're not throwaway categories. They're not throwaway things. Being male is a good thing. Being female is a good thing. And their differences are beautiful and they're needed in the world. God wants us to exist in those things. wants us to live in the gender that he's given us. They're not throwaway categories, but they're things that we're called to live in. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them both male and female. And God in the beginning said it was good. It was beautiful. From the very beginning, it's always been this way. And because they're male and female, that's why they come together. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. You see, marriage is a mystery. It's a profound calling. It's one man and one woman becoming one flesh for one life. Marriage is a man and a woman becoming one flesh for life. And uh, this is one of those things where we come to the moment where everyone's always like, what about gay marriage? You ask that question, right? But just really quick, before we talk about it, let's take a deep breath. Exhale. One more time. I don't know why it is, but this issue just like makes everybody freak out right you go on cnn and people are just like yelling at each other about this issue right and yet can we be honest for a moment and can we just chill out a little bit and say that of all the people you know you don't know any christians who are out trying to kill or harm any gay people and you don't know any gay people who are out there trying to kill or harm christians you see, this is one of those issues that we look at in our culture, and we have to realize that historic Christianity and the gay community simply see sexuality and marriage differently. They, they, they see it differently, right? Like, if you know gay people, I, I have some gay friends, and if you were to ask them, well, what's marriage and what is sexuality? What do they exist for? They'd probably say, well, it's to, to be with somebody and, um, you know, to be intimate with somebody. They, they would say those kinds of things. And yet, as Christians, the difference between us and our divine design for a man and a woman is we think that marriage has a divine purpose. There, there, there's more to marriage than just kind of being with somebody. But that marriage is supposed to unite us with someone very different than us. Which is kind of the irony when you think about it, is in our diverse culture, we want to get rid of diversity in marriage. And so as Christians, we come to the words of Jesus, not arrogant, not thinking that we're better than anybody, because I don't think God thinks that homosexuality is worse than your sin of gossip, or my sin of envy, or apathy, or anything else, right? So if we're always focusing on this issue, if we're always harping on this issue, then we're we're being self-righteous. And yet we have to admit that all of us come to Jesus with many things in our lives that we have to lay before him if we really want to follow Jesus. And this is one of those things in our cultural moment that's a huge, huge deal. I'm reminded of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, and he wants to follow Jesus. He's like, what, what do I have to inherit, inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to follow you? And he says, okay, this is what you have to do, do all these commandments. like, I did them all. He's like, now Jesus says, now, now go and sell everything you have, rich young man. And the guy walks away very sad and says, I can't do that. I can't go with that. And I think this is one of those reasons why this is such a huge issue for the church in our day and age is because it's easy to follow Jesus when we're doing things that the culture applauds. It's easy to feed a homeless guy because everyone kind of, you know, says good job. It's easy to be there for a friend when they're struggling because people think that's a good thing. It's easy to care for children because that's viewed as a good thing. And yet ultimately when we follow the commands of Jesus, the things that are not popular, these are the moments I think where we really begin to assess honestly, are we following Jesus or are we living in a fear of man? Are we willing to follow Jesus at all costs? Whereas the culture will often say, conform to your passions. The call of the Christian is, Jesus says, conform all things to me. Here's the reality. Jesus offends everybody, right? We're all offended, right? Because we're all not good enough. We all fall short. We're called to love all people of all orientations. Yet in all things, we are called to surrender and to submit to Jesus. And marriage is one of those profound things in our day. For those who are called to marriage, you have an epic and an amazing calling in this life. As we uh, draw to a close, I want to close with one story. Turn me to John chapter 11. We're going to read the story of Lazarus as we close. And I do this uh, intentionally because whether you are single or you're married, I think what you will often find is that that calling is difficult. If you're single, there'll be moments where Your singleness is difficult, and if you are married, there will be moments where your marriage is difficult. Yet There's a story in John chapter 11, look at verse 1, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Martha, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And so what happens here in this moment is we see that some of the friends of Jesus come to Jesus and say, Jesus, my brother Lazarus is extremely ill, extremely sick. Please come and save him. He's struggling. And so Jesus, I love it, as he, before he even shows up to Lazarus, you know what he says, verse 4. He says, when you heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death, no. It is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And I think that's the critical thing that we always forget about our pain and struggle in life. And whatever you're called to do, is that there are moments where there is pain and struggle, even beyond your relationship status. And we think this is painful, this stinks. And yet what Jesus says in this moment, he goes, this will not end in death. This is for God's glory. And what we find here is that God's glory is abounding in our pain. As you pursue singleness, as you pursue marriage, in the moments where it's difficult, I want to remind you that the glory and the goodness and the purpose of God are abounding in your pain. I always tell people this, when you feel pain, that's not the moment to turn away. That's the moment to embrace But then what happens is Jesus comes and sees Lazarus, but then he leaves to go do some more ministry, and Lazarus still lay there sick. And while Jesus is going away doing other things, Lazarus ends up dying. Jesus hears this, and he shows back up to the family. He walks in, and Martha, one of the sisters, comes to Jesus, and she says, Jesus, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died if you'd just been here. And yet, what Jesus says is, I can raise the dead. And I love that because even though Martha knew he was the Son of God, it's almost like for a moment she forgot that he was in control and that he was in charge and that he loved her and that he could do all things. And so, what I want to leave you with today in your singleness or in your marriage is an amazing theological reality that Jesus has never been late and Jesus has never made a mistake. Your singleness, biblically, is not a mistake, it's a calling. And your marriage, in the moments where it's difficult, you didn't make a mistake, it's a calling. These are the things that shape us and these are often the pains of which the glory of God powerfully abounds in to shape us for his good pleasure and for our good. Church, may we walk powerfully in our callings this week until the Lord calls us home. Let's pray. Father, I'm just reminded of how high your thinking is. I think often, Lord, we kind of zone into our own life and we kind of miss all the things that you're doing. And yet I pray, Lord, we wouldn't miss you. I pray for those in this room who are seeking for something. I pray that you would reveal to them that that you are what they're looking for. And I pray that those who are wandering or struggling would find your comfort, your peace, your guidance in all things. God, just remind us that you're with us. If we could just know that every single second of every single day, God, that you were with us and that you love us, that you have a plan for us, and that you've given us a design to walk in and a calling to exist in, God. God, give us the faith to trust those things. We pray all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.